Coming up on today's episode of The Virtual Couch, don't let the title fool you. Sociopaths, psychopaths, narcissists, oh my. We're going to talk about these different cluster B personality disorders, but in particular, we're going to focus on an interview in The Atlantic featuring Dr. James Fallon, and the interview's titled Life as a Nonviolent Psychopath, which is going to shed a lot of light on just even the idea of what makes a psychopath nature versus nurture. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the concept of personality disorders, these cluster B personality disorders that tend to have a flair for the dramatic. And I think that this will bring a lot of awareness to somebody that feels like they might be in a relationship with somebody who might struggle with a personality disorder, if they feel like somebody in their family might struggle with a personality disorder. But some of the true gold here is in this interview with Dr. James Fallon, where he talks about kind of coming to an awareness that his behavior was not what he wanted it to be, especially with those that he cared for. So I feel like there's just a lot that you can learn today if you've ever wondered about any of these or feel like you're dealing with any of these types of personalities in your life. So that and plenty more coming up on The Virtual Couch. Hey, before we get started today, I do want to talk about my friends at BetterHelp.com. Now, I typically read emails that I receive from listeners, and those emails are fantastic. I think my point there was I wanted people to recognize that they are getting help through BetterHelp.com, specifically BetterHelp.com slash virtual couch. But I was listening to BetterHelp.com has ads on a lot of different uh, podcasts, a lot of my favorite podcasts. And I was listening to one of the, the reads of the ad and it was wonderful. It was fantastic. The data was there. But, you know, it kind of dawned on me, hey, I'm a therapist. Um, this is, I, I believe everybody could use a little bit of therapy in their life, truly, to be able to process difficult things to be able to go to work through things that they've always kind of st- been stuck on or things that have just kicked around in their head that they're afraid to talk about or things that they're even aware of that are holding them back from living an incredible life. And I know part of that struggle can be finding a therapist. It can be if there aren't a lot of therapists in your area. And let's be honest, it can be for a lot of people, there's still a very negative stigma around therapy. And it can be the process of having to go to a therapist, worrying about who I will see, who will, who will I see in the parking lot or in the waiting room or what if the receptionist gives me the stink eye, whatever it is, I understand. So that's where betterhelp.com comes in. So if you go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, you can set up an account there and they have a very broad range of expertise. I've looked through this. They have people that are um, amazing therapists and with treating OCD, treating anxiety, depression, uh, anxiety. I said anxiety, but uh, lots of people that can treat anxiety there, but they have different modalities. My favorite one, acceptance and commitment therapy. They have um, acceptance and commitment therapy therapist, cognitive behavioral therapist. They have behavioral therapy. They have so many options there. But the key is when you go, when you sign up, when you go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, you do fill out some assessment paperwork and they do a very, very phenomenal job at matching you with a therapist that is going to most likely click. But here's the cool part. If, if the therapist, if you don't click with the therapist, they make it very painless to even change therapists. So there's a broad range of expertise in their counselor network, which might not be available in your local your local area. It's available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and you can send a message to your therapist and they will get, uh, you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you don't necessarily have to come sit in the uncomfortable waiting room and they, you can start communicating often in less than 24 hours. I'll be super honest. I, I have a very blessed um, practice. I, I, I get uh, referrals literally daily from the podcast, from uh, people that I've worked with before. And it, it honestly, it breaks my heart that sometimes I feel like I can't even, I don't have enough time to even get back to people. And I feel so bad about that. And that's where I honestly love the fact that you can start communicating with somebody in 24 to 48 hours. If you have tried to find a therapist, sometimes you'll know that you might not hear back from them and you're ready. You you want help. So they're, they're committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches and it's easy. It's free to change counselors if you need it. It's more affordable, I'll be honest, than traditional offline counseling and they have financial aid. So they really want you to start living a happier life today. And I'm going to be honest, I do too. So please go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. If you do that, you will receive 10% off your first month's service. And, uh, and, and now I, I can't lie. If you go to betterhelp.com 
um, slash virtual couch and you go through there, then, you know, that, sure, it's a, there, there is going to be a little something that can help me with the cost of the podcast. So I would be grateful if you went through betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. All right. Um, go do it today. It's time to start getting help. Betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. If you or anybody that you know is struggling to put pornography behind them once and for all, and trust me, it can be done in a strength based hold the shame, become the person you always knew you could be way, then please head over to pathbackrecovery.com and there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to get rid of pornography once and for all. Again, that is pathbackrecovery.com. And I'll go through this part very quickly. Please visit Virtual Couch on Instagram. There's a weekly question and answers, little Instagram TV. You can also follow Virtual Couch on Facebook or Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist on Facebook as well. And if you have enjoyed any of the Virtual Couch podcast material, please do me a favor and rate, review, subscribe, share, whatever you want to do. That is the currency of podcasts these days, and that would help me out a great deal. Just get the podcast in front of more people. And uh, go over to TonyOverbay.com. I'm sharing a lot more information information there on some upcoming programs, podcasts, and more release on my book. I think it's coming out in just a few weeks. I co-authored a book that is, it's really getting some great pre-release buzz. The book is called, He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An Expert and a Former Addict Answer Your Questions. And I am playing the role of the expert and former virtual couch guest, Josh Shea, who I will have on the podcast again, probably in a few weeks. We're going to let the book get out and uh, get moving a little bit before we do some podcasts together, but he will be on here. He's already authored a best-selling book called The Addiction That Nobody Will Talk About, and he writes as the addict. So I will have a link in the show notes where you can go and pre-order the book, but let's get to today's topic. So one of the most common emails that I get, and uh, no joke, is things about, questions about uh, psychopath, sociopath, narcissism. If you've been listening to the virtual couch for a while, you know that I do quite a bit in the world of narcissism. Sometimes I don't think that I uh, share enough what uh, what that is, why, why I do that. And part of that is because a big part of my practice is helping people who find themselves in relationships with people who they believe may struggle with narcissistic personality disorder or NPD. And so I end up doing a lot of work around personality disorders. And so you can go back and you can find some episodes that I've done on narcissism or on gaslighting or on uh, just personality disorders in general. And so the more that you put data or, or information out there on things like personality disorders and narcissism, the more questions you get about that, the more clients you see around that. And so I've actually had the opportunity to testify in some court cases around personality disorders, narcissism, and uh, and again, a big part of my practice. And I'll be honest, I, I and it sounds weird to say I enjoy working with people uh, that maybe are in relationships or trying to get out of relationships with people with personality disorders. But I mean, that is a big part of my practice. And I feel like there are definitely some things that you can do that will kind of help keep you sane and help you really know what to do next if you are find yourself in one of those relationships. And I may or may not have uh, an upcoming project, a pretty big project that will also talk about that that I can't wait to kind of give more information on. So more of that to follow. But so I get a lot of emails about the podcast in general, which I am just so grateful for. I never anticipated getting the feedback that I would for the virtual couch. But a lot of them are, um, how can you tell if someone is a sociopath or a psychopath or what's the difference between sociopathy and psychopathy or narcissism and sociopathy or sociopaths and narcissists, all of those type of things. So I've been meaning to do an episode like this for a long time, but I didn't want it to just sound very dry and clinical. So I thought what I would do is I want to start with an article that I stumbled upon years ago, actually before I feel like I ran up on, uh, ran into this before I really started focusing more in the world of personality disorders. And this was an article in The Atlantic. It's uh, at theatlantic.com. And, uh, and of course, I will put the link to this article in my show notes. 
and 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 also want to be very very um, clear that I am going to be reading almost word by word um, this article because it's an interview and it's called Life as a Nonviolent Psychopath and it's something that really put me. Um, kind of one of these things that put me on the path of working with people with personality disorders because I found this article just fascinating. And it's an article by a neuroscientist named James Fallon. And James Fallon has actually gone on to write a book that uh, it's called The Psychopath Inside, A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. And I ended up grabbing the book and also the audio book and I've listened to it a time or two. I've actually, I think I've read the book twice and, and listened to the audio book uh, maybe one and a half times and recommended it to some people because I'll run into people from time to time who, who they literally will say, hey, do you think that I'm a psychopath? And, uh, and I feel like this is a nice way to kind of give an introduction on what psychopathy looks like. So I want to start by going over this article, and then I've got another article that I'll get to a little bit later, which is with from a Dr. Stein, and that talks about a difference between um, sociopaths and narcissists, and we'll kind of go into the differences there. So this is a pretty interesting story. And uh, and again, I, the reason I wanted to be clear on that I'm reading this article is I know you can go read the article too, And but a uh, big part of what podcasts do is they kind of fill you in on some information when you're, uh, whether you're at the gym or whether you're in the car, on a walk, that sort of thing. So I want to, I want to provide that information because I think it gives a nice background on what psycho, um, psychopathology looks like, uh, psychopathy. Um, but uh, especially in this life as a nonviolent psychopath, I feel like this neuroscientist, James Fallon, really kind of lays out maybe the whole nature nurture debate or why, why, how can someone be a, like he says, a nonviolent psychopath? So, um, so let's kind of dig in here. So it says neuroscientist James Fallon discovered through his work that he has the brain of a psychopath and subsequently learned a lot about the role of genes in personality and how his brain affects his life. And, and I would encourage you if, if you are, if you kind of wonder anything about even narcissism or, or can a narcissist be cured or can you bring awareness to a narcissist? I think there's a pretty interesting part that we're going to get to and probably I would guess about 10, 15 minutes that talks about his awareness, Dr. Fallon's awareness around once he recognized that he had the brain of a psychopath and what he's done with that, especially with regard to family. And I think that that is where when I talk about, um, sometimes I talk about working with what I'll call a unicorn, which is a narcissist who, you know, doesn't believe that anything is wrong with them whatsoever. But if they are about to lose perhaps family, job, career, that sort of thing, that's when I've run into some people who have kind of said, okay, fine, you know, maybe, maybe I am a narcissist, uh, but if so, what do I do with it anyway? You know, it's like you get them and they're willing to listen or look at what their behavior may be doing or causing to um, close personal relationships, especially members of the family. And I feel like Dr. Fallon talks very, very directly toward that here in a little bit. So it said in 2005, James Fallon life started to resemble the plot of a well-honed joke or a big screen thriller. So he's a neuroscientist. He's working in his lab one day. And he thinks that he's stumbled upon a big mistake. So he's researching Alzheimer's and he's using his healthy family members' brain scans kind of as a control group. So he had asked uh, several members of his family, including himself, to do these functional MRIs, and uh, which are brain scans. And he's going to put those in a pile. And then he also was simultaneously reviewing the functional MRIs of murderous psychopaths for a side project. Already um, pretty wild. They, you know, here you've got a, a neuroscientist, Dr. Fallon, who can do everything from looking at uh, researching Alzheimer's in the brain and also has this side project about murderous psychopaths. So it appears, though, that one of the killer scans has been shuffled into the wrong batch. So it says the scans are anonymously labeled. So the researcher has a technician break the code to identify the individual in his family and place his or her scan in its proper place. And in the book, The Psychopath Inside a Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain, if I remember correctly, um, this was a pretty interesting part where I I believe it uh, talked about him wondering, which I'm sure you can imagine, who in my family is a psychopath, right? That he knows, oh my gosh, when this this researcher uh, technician breaks the code, you know, he can't wait to tell Aunt Phyllis or Uncle Ron or whoever it's going to be that they... Or maybe he's not going to tell him when he finds out that they have the brain of a psychopath. So when he sees the results, however, Fallon immediately orders the technician to double check the code. But no mistake has been made. The brain scan that mirrors those of psychopaths belongs to Dr. Fallon. So after discovering that he had the brain of a psychopath, Fallon delved into his family tree. And he spoke with experts and colleagues and relatives and friends to see if his behavior matched up with the imaging in front of him. 
So he not only learned that few people were surprised at the outcome, I can only imagine what that was like, but that the boundary separating him from dangerous criminals was less determinate than he had presumed. So, and again, he wrote about uh, his research and findings in the book, The Psychopath Inside, A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. And, oh, I should read, uh, this is an Atlantic article. And so the, uh, the interviewer then says that he spoke about the idea of nature versus nurture and what, if anything, can be done for people whose biology might betray their behavior. And the interviewer in this article is a woman named Judith, and I am 100% going to butcher this, I'm sure, uh, Ohikaraway. So I don't know her, um, but uh, it's an amazing interview. And so from this point forward, I will refer to the interviewer as Judith, even though we are not on a first name basis. Although, uh, if Judith, if you uh, hear this interview, um, it would be wonderful to talk to you and perhaps we would hit it off well and we could be on a first name basis. But so Judith said that we spoke about the idea of nature versus nurture. And again, what if anything can be done with people whose biology might betray their behavior? I love that concept of whose biology might betray their behavior. So she says, one of the first things that you talk about in your book is the often unrealistic or ridiculous ways that psychopaths are portrayed in film and television. Why did you decide to share your story and risk being lumped in with all of that? That was a very awkward reading of the question by me, uh, but uh, but I appreciate her question of, you know, um, Dr. Fallon did not necessarily need, well, not necessarily, he did not have to go public with this kind of research because the research is no doubt tell, saying what? Saying, hey, this guy is a psychopath. He's admitting it. His brain scan shows that. So he says, I'm a basic neuroscientist, stem cells, growth factors, imaging genetics, that sort of thing. When I found out about my scan, I kind of let it go after I saw the rest of my families were quite normal. He said, I was worried about Alzheimer's, especially along with my wife's side, and we were concerned about our kids and grandkids. Then my lab was busy doing gene discovery for schizophrenia and Alzheimer's and launching a biotech startup for our research on adult stem cells. We won an award, and I was so involved with other things that I didn't actually look at my results for a couple of years. Dr. Fallon goes on to say, this personal experience really had me look into a field that I was only tangentially related to and burnished into my mind the importance of genes and the environment on a molecular level. So, and, and we're going to get into this quite a bit as well. This g- genes, the genetics, and the environment, which again, we're going into both nature and nurture. So he said that per- for specific genes, those interactions can really explain behavior. And what is hidden under my personal story is a discussion about the effect of bullying, abuse, and street violence on kids. So Judith went on to say, you used to believe that people were roughly 80% the result of their genetics and 20% the result of their environment. How did this discovery cause a shift in your thinking? And so he said he went into this with the bias of a scientist who believed for many years that genetics were very, very dominant in who people are and that your genes would tell you who you were going to be. And then he said, it's not that I no longer think that biology, which includes genetics, is a major determinant. I just never knew how profoundly an early environment could affect somebody. He said, while I was writing this book, my mother started to tell me more things about myself. She said that she had never told me of, uh, or my father how weird I was at certain points in my youth, even though I was a happy-go-lucky kind of kid. And he said, as I was growing up, people all throughout my life said I could be some kind of gang leader or mafioso don because of certain behaviors. He said, some parents forbade their children from hanging out with me. They wonder how I turned out so well, a family guy, successful, professional. I'd never been to jail and all that. He said that he asked everybody he knew, including psychiatrists and geneticists that have known him for a long time and knew his bad behavior, what they thought. He said that they went through very specific things that I had done over the years and said, that's psychopathic. And I asked them why they didn't tell me. And they said, we did tell you. We've been telling you all along. He said, I argued that they had been calling me crazy. And they said, no, no, we've been saying that you're psychopathic. He said, I found out that I happen to have a series of genetic alleles or warrior genes. And I have I, I haven't heard of this uh, these warrior genes before, but that these warrior genes, he said, had to do with serotonin and were thought to be at risk for aggression, violence, and low emotional and interpersonal empathy. So if you're raised in an abusive environment, that's how those things may manifest. He said, but if you're raised in a very positive environment, um, that can have the effect of offsetting the negative effects of some of the other genes. And I think that's where things get really interesting. So now we've got a combination of nature and nurture. So Dr. Fallon said, I had some geneticists and psychiatrists who didn't know me examine me independently and look at the whole series of disorders I've had throughout my life. None of them have been severe. 
I've had the mild form of things like anxiety disorder and OCD, but it lined up with my genetics. And I remember specifically from the book that his form of OCD is something called scrupulosity. And uh, if I remember correctly, he, he was raised Catholic. And he, the, what scrupulosity is, is it's the OCD of religious thought. And that's another area that I've happened to find myself working a fair amount in. And that wasn't something that I thought that I would be working in when I started my practice. But I work with, uh, you know, Catholicism, Mormonism. Um, some of these are the, the faith communities that really struggle the most with this um, scrupulosity or OCD of religious thoughts. But he went on to say, but these things lined up with his genetics. So the scientist then said, for one, you might never have been born. Um, said He said, my mother had miscarried several times and there were probably were some genetic errors. They also said that if I hadn't been treated so well, I probably wouldn't have made it out of being a teenager. And I thought this was interesting. Again, just reading off of the page, you can't necessarily gauge emotion. But he says, I probably wouldn't have made it out of being a teenager. I would have committed suicide or gotten killed because I would have been a violent guy. So, again, there he's saying that uh, if I hadn't been treated so well, so there comes that concept of nurture, um, uh, right? Nurture versus nature. So, uh, the interviewer, Judah, said, how did you react to hearing all this? And he said, uh, and I love this, I said, well, I don't care. And they said, that proves that you have a fair dose of psychopathy. Science don't, scientists don't like to be wrong. And then he, and he went on to say, and here's where things get really interesting as well. He said, I'm narcissistic, so I hate to be wrong. But when the answer is there before you, you have to suck it up, admit it, and move on. He said, I couldn't. I started reacting with narcissism saying, okay, I bet I can beat this. Watch me and I'll be better. And then I realized my own narcissism was driving that response. And he said, if you knew me, you'd probably say, oh, he's a fun guy, or maybe he's a big mouth and a blowhard narcissist. But I also think you'd say, all in all, he's interesting and smart and okay. But here's the thing, he said, the closer to me you are, the worse it gets. And, and I just kind of want to pause here before I go further. Here's where I think things get pretty interesting about even his awareness around his narcissism, which I'm wondering if it came at a later date. But, uh, but the awareness of, of the narcissism, that is the beginning of what I like to call working with the unicorn, where I will find people from time to time, that, and it doesn't just happen overnight, but where because of certain events, they will say, okay, all right, maybe it is my narcissism. You know? And so I think this is pretty brilliant, the, where he goes from here. So he said, even though I have a number of very good friends, they all have ultimately told me over the past two years that when I asked them, and they were consistent, even though they hadn't talked to each other, that I do things that are quite irresponsible. He said, it's not like I say, go get into trouble. He said, I say, jump in the water with me. And uh, the interviewer, Judith, went on to say, what's an example of that? How do you come back from hurting somebody in that way? And he said, for me, because I need these buzzes, I get into dangerous situations. And he wanted to tell a pretty incredible story about uh, several years ago when he worked at the University of Nairobi Hospital. Um, some doctors had told him about AIDS in the region, as well as this um, deadly virus called the Marburg virus, which if you go on to do a little bit of digging about the Marburg virus, this is the virus that uh, supposedly um, was the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's what spurred the, the movie Outbreak, which was an, an incredibly um, scary movie about a virus that, that goes wild. But, uh, but he said that the, he had been told about this uh, AIDS in this region as well as the Marburg virus. They said a guy had come in bleeding out of his nose and ears, that he'd been up in this El Cagón in the Kittim Caves. And he said, okay, that's where the elephants go. And he said, I knew I had to visit. And he said, I would have gone along, but my brother was there. So I told him it was this epic trek of where old matriarch elephants went to retrieve minerals of, out of caves. But he didn't mention anything else about the Marburg virus or, or the AIDS in the region. So he said that when he got there, there was a lot of rebel activity on the mountain. So there was nobody in the park except for one guard. So he said that he and his brother just went in and there were all these rare animals and it was tremendous. But also the guy had died from Marburg virus after being there and nobody knew exactly how he'd gotten it. But uh, um, Dr. Fallon said he knew his path and he followed it to see where the guy had camped. So that night, he said, we wrapped ourselves around a fire because there were lions and there were all these other animals. He said we were jumping around and waving sticks on fire at the animals in the absolute dark. He said his brother was going crazy and he joked, um, I have to put my head inside of yours because I have a family and you don't. So if a lion comes and bites one of our necks, it's got to be you. Again, he said, I was joking around, but it was real danger. He said the next day we walked into these Kittim Caves and you could see where the rocks had been knocked over by these elephants. But there was also the smell of all this animal dung and that's where the guy got the Marburg virus. And scientists didn't know whether it was the dung or the bats. So he said a bit later his brother read an article in the New Yorker about Marburg which inspired the movie Outbreak. And he asked him if he knew about it. He asked Dr. Fallon, did you know about the Marburg virus there? And he said, yeah, wasn't it exciting? Nobody gets to do this trip. And he called me names and he said, it, it, not exciting enough. We could have gotten Marburg. We could have gotten killed every two seconds. 
And Dr. Fallon went on to say, all my brothers have a lot of this machismo and brio. He said, you've got to be a tough guy in our family. But deep inside, he said, I don't think that my brother fundamentally trusts me after that. And why should he, right? To me, it was nothing. So after all of this research, Dr. Fallon said, I started to think of all this experience as an opportunity to do something good um, out of being kind of a jerk my entire life. So he said, instead of trying to fundamentally change, because it's very difficult to change anything, he said, I wanted to use what could be considered faults, like his narcissism, to an advantage, to do something good. You know, stop, the, stop the podcast right there. I mean, that's the thing that I, I, I just wish, you know, in this world of narcissism, where narcissists are looking through, as my guest Christine Hammond said long ago, these fused on yellow lens glasses where they truly don't think that they're doing anything wrong, which that's one of these key components of narcissism is it's they're doing nothing wrong with their version of ego or of self. So it's, it's, this is huge. To see him say, I wanted to do some, I wanted to use what could be considered faults like narcissism to an advantage to do something good. So uh, the interviewer, Judith from The Atlantic, said, What is that involved? And here's where I think things just are, are just pretty incredible as far as if we're heading toward this world of the unicorn. He said, I started with simple things of how I interact with my wife, my sister, and my mother. Even though they've always been close to me, I don't treat them all that well. And again, the awareness that Dr. Fallon has here, but it, it came at a um, through a tremendous amount of time, work, this sort of thing. But he said, uh, even though they're close to me, I don't treat them that well. He said, I treat strangers pretty well, really well. And people tend to like me when they meet me, but I treat my family the same way, like they're just somebody at a bar. He said, I treat them well, but I don't treat them in a special way. And he said, that's the big problem. Dr. Fallon said, I asked them this. It's not something that a person will tell you spontaneously. But they said, I give you everything. I give you all this love and you really don't give it back. And, uh, and I know if, if anyone's been in a relationship with a narcissist, for example, they know that they do. They do often feel like they are giving constantly, but they don't get anything back. But if they then say, hey, I'm not getting anything back, oftentimes now they've opened themselves up to the concept of gaslighting where the narcissist will tell them, well, you don't give me anything either, and, and which can kind of start to enter this pretty negative cycle. So, they, so again, his family said, I give you everything. I give you all this love, and you really don't give it back. They all said it. And, he, and that sure bothered me, he said. So I wanted to see if I could change. I don't believe it, but I'm going to try. Pretty, pretty incredible, right? In order to do that, uh, Dr. Fallon said that every time I started to do something, I had to think about it and look at it and go, no, don't do the selfish thing or the self-serving thing. Step by step, that's what I've been doing for about a year and a half, and they all like it. Their basic response is, we know you don't really mean it, but we still like it. And this paragraph alone is pretty key. And I know I joke oftentimes about my own dustings of narcissism, but I mean, I'm, I'm pretty honest about it where there's uh, times where I, I have had to think, wow, I have found myself kind of turning a story back to me. Or, you know, I, I have found myself maybe not listening as empathetically as I could. I'm not talking more about my practice, but that's why I really identified with him talking about even things in his family. And so I feel like that awareness starts internally. That awareness for whether it's the psychopath, the sociopath, the narcissist, the you know the person who's just kind of selfish, or maybe for, focus more on their own ego. That it starts with this awareness of thinking, "Wow, okay, I, I I was already thinking of what's next, or I wasn't listening to the person intently." So um, I just love that he said again. Uh, that's something that um, that you know step by step. He's doing this for a year and a half, that where he has to think things through and say, "No, don't do the selfish thing or the self serving thing." Um, he said that I told them, you got to be kidding me. You'll accept this. He said, it's phony. And they said, no, 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 it's okay. If you treat people better, it means you care enough to try again. That's, that's mind blowing. I mean, I wish that, uh, every narcissist in the world could even hear just that alone where their family appreciates because if they, if they treat people better, it means they care enough to try. Dr. Fallon said it blew him away then. And he said, it still blows me away now. But treating everybody the same isn't necessarily a bad thing, is it? Uh, again, this is the, uh, the interviewer, Judith. She said, it's, uh, is it just that the people close to you want more from you? And Dr. Fallon said, yes, they absolutely expect and demand more. It's kind of cruelty, a kind of abuse, because you're not giving them that love. He said, my wife to this day says it's hard to be with me at parties because I've got all these people around me and I'll leave her or other people in the cold. She's not a selfish, uh, she's not a selfish person, but I can see now how it can really work on somebody. This is an example. Oftentimes, this is me jumping in here, 
but there are certain traits you see in in things like narcissistic personality disorder. And man, again, I won't do the dramatic while well, I'm doing it right now. I was going to say, if I had a dollar for every one of these stories where I will hear about someone who may be struggling with narcissistic personality disorder, leaving their partner at parties, at uh, at events, at it, you name it. I mean, and I've worked with some pretty incredible, uh, incredibly high profile and successful narcissists. Um, so these can be some pretty grand events, galas, we might even say, award show, you name it. And uh, these are people that do leave their partner in the lurch or they'll leave them behind. And uh, and that's something that can really um, affect a partner, um, affect the partner who is being left behind. Uh, Dr. Fallon said, I gave a talk two years ago in India at the Mumbai Lit Fest on personality disorders and psychopathy. And he said that we also had a historian from Oxford talk about violence against women in terms of the brain and social development. After it was over, he said a woman came up to me and asked if we could talk. She was a psychiatrist, but also a science writer. And she said, you said that you live in a flat emotional world. That is that you treat everybody the same. And she said, that's Buddhist. And he said, I don't know anything about Buddhism, but she continued on and said, it's too bad that the people close to you are so disappointed in being close to you. Any learned Buddhist would think that was great. And he said, I really don't know what to do with that. So I think that he's, you know, this is the part where he's kind of saying that, you know, he's being told that, hey, this is okay. This is like this Buddhist state that you've gotten to. And and this is me weighing in personally where I feel like, you know, I work with a lot of people that try to get to this mindfulness uh, place, this kind of Zen, almost like Buddhist-like place of acceptance where then they aren't as reactionary. So I feel like what uh, this woman was saying is that, hey, you you happen to be uh, doing something that could be labeled as Buddhist. And so why don't you kind of hang your hat on that? And Dr. Fallon's saying, you know, I, I don't know what to do with that. And then I think it's because this isn't something that he necessarily has worked for or doesn't seem or feel genuine to him. Sometimes uh, he said the truth is not just that it hurts, but just that it's so disappointing. He said you want to believe in romance and have romance in your life, even the most hardcore, and I think this is pretty interesting. He said even the most hardcore, cold intellectual wants the romantic notion. It kind of makes life worth living. But with these kinds of things, you really start thinking about what a machine it means that we are. What it means that some of us don't need those feelings while some of us need them so much. He said it destroys the romantic fabric of society in a way. And again, jumping in uh, as a therapist here, this is the part where I can appreciate what he said earlier, what his family said, but you trying shows us that you care. And so a lot of times if I jump back into my couples therapist world of uh, this emotionally focused therapy, this EFT that I love, is that we really do try to dig down to these truths. Because if someone doesn't know, here comes the cliche, if somebody doesn't know what they don't know, if they don't even know what a, a true connection or um, emotional attachment feels like, they've never seen it modeled, and they truly don't know what it feels like, the way to start, if we're ever going to have that emotional connection with somebody, it's important that the person has the awareness to say, I, I guess I don't really know. I don't understand what you're asking for, partner, or what you're saying, therapist. Um, and so I really feel like, sure, you know, I, I can appreciate what he's saying is that what it means is that some of us don't need those feelings while some of us need them so much. He said it destroys the romantic fabric of society in a way, but marriage therapists uh, here recording this podcast sees that the um, the lack of awareness of what we're even dealing with is what really can destroy that romantic fabric of society. And that when people do have the awareness of, okay, maybe I don't understand what this emotional attachment or connection looks like, feels like, should be like, that that's where we can start to grow toward that. When the person can feel like they can open up and say, I, I don't even know what I'm trying to get out of this relationship, you know, that's when the healing can really start to happen. So Dr. Fallon says, so what I do in this situation is I think, how do I treat the people in my life as if I'm their son or their brother or their husband? He said, it's about going the extra mile for them so that they know, um, I know that this is the right thing to do. He said, uh, I know when the situation comes up, but my gut instinct is to do something selfish. So instead, I slow down. I love, I love that he said that. I slow down and I try to think about it. He said, it's like dumb behavioral modification. There's no finesse to this. But I said, well, why does there have to be finesse? He said, I'm trying to treat it as a straightaway thing when the situation comes up to realize that there's a chance that I might be wrong or reacting in a poor way or without any sort of love like a human. That's brilliant. Any narcissist that might be hearing this right now or anyone who might be in a relationship with one, if I, this might be the key moment where you want to just have somebody hear this where he says, I'm trying to treat it as a straightaway thing when the situation comes up to realize there's a chance that I might be wrong or I might be reacting in a poor way 
or without any sort of love like a human. So, and this might be a something where if you're if you want some more information, um, he spends a little bit of the interview now talking about um, psychopathy in children. And so, I'm going to skip that for uh, the sake of this podcast. But again, I'll show I'll link to the the article in the show notes. But uh, he really goes on to talk a little bit more about um, plasticity or the neuroplasticity of the brain. So he said that he, he still, as a neurologist, he said he still really doubts a bit about plasticity. He said he's trying to do these, this change by devoting himself to this one thing, to being a nice guy that the people who are, so that the people who are close to him. But it's sort of a game he says he's playing with himself because he says he's not really, he doesn't really believe it can be done and it's a challenge. But he said in some ways, though, the stakes are very different. Or I'm sorry, Judith, the interviewer, says in some ways, though, the stakes are different for you because you're not violent. And isn't that the concern? Relative to your own life, your attempts to change may positively impact your relationship with your friends, family, colleagues. But in the case of possibly violent people, they may actually harm others. And, uh, and Dr. Fallon says the jump from being a pro-social psychopath or somebody on the edge who doesn't act out violently to somebody who really is a real criminal predator, he said, isn't that clear. He said, for me, I think I was protected because I was brought up in an upper middle class educated environment with very supportive men and women in my family. So there may be a mass convergence of genetics and environment over a long period of time. But he said, what would happen if I lost my family or I lost my job? Then what would I become? He said, that's really the test. And I, and I think this is, uh, you know, I do get people often that say that they feel like their teenager or um, maybe even their, their kid lacks the uh, empathy. And I've done some episodes on how to, how to create empathy. There's a two-part episode I did somewhere back in the episode numbers, maybe 70s, 80s, 90s, where it really does talk about how to model empathy. And I, and I really encourage you to go back and find those episodes because it's some really nice ways to kind of talk through or show how you express empathy or to get someone thinking a little bit more empathetically. But, uh, but so what Dr. Fallon said is for people who have the fundamental biology, he said the genetics, the brain patterns, and the early existence of trauma, first of all, if they're abused, they're, they, he says they're going to be ticked off and have a sense of revenge. Um, he said they're going to think thoughts often like, I don't care what happens to the world because I'm getting even. But he said a real primary psychopath doesn't need that. He said uh, they're just predators who don't need to be angry at all. They just do these things because of some, some fundamental lack of connection with the human race, with individuals, and so on. So he said somebody who has the money, the sex, the rock and roll, and everything, they may still be a psychopath, but they may just manipulate people or use people and obviously not kill them. He said they may hurt others, but not in a violent way. But he said most people care about violence. That's the thing. Um, he said people may say, oh, this is a very bad investment counselor was a psychopath, but the essential difference in criminality between that and a murderer is something that we all hate and we all fear. He said it isn't just that there is some ultimate trigger. And, and I think that's uh, so and where I was headed with that is sometimes, you know, I feel like if somebody does have a uh, they have a kid and they grow up in a fairly healthy environment or where they have a nurturing mom or nurturing dad or, or maybe both where they do feel like there might be some of these psychopathic tendencies or traits but uh, but I love that what Dr. Fallon is saying is that um, that that nurture part is very important where they, you know, that that's why he titles this whole thing life of a nonviolent psychopath. So he said there isn't an absolute fix. He said you talk about the import or the the author, the interviewer, Judah says, and though there isn't an absolute fix, she said you talk about the importance of the what she calls the or he calls the fourth trimester, um, the months following a baby's birth when bonding is key. Uh, she asked, what are other really crucial moments where you can see how someone may be at risk or when there's a convergence of genetics environment where that might be crucial for intervention or at least identifying what's happening? And um, Dr. Fallon says, there are some critical periods in human development. He said for the epigenome, the first moment is the moment of conception. So he said that's where the genetics are very vulnerable to methylation. And I looked that up and it's uh, basically kind of a, a process of um, halting some of the genetic uh, movement or a little bit toward change. And um, therefore, he says, the effects of a harsh environment, the mother under stress, the mother uh, taking drugs or alcohol, things like that. The second greatest susceptibility is the moment of birth. And, and of course, there are third and fourth trimesters. After that, he said, there's a slow sort of or there's a slow sort of susceptibility curve that goes down. So he goes on to say the first two years of life are pretty critical if you overlap them with the emergence of what are called complex adaptive behaviors. When children are born, they have some natural kind of genetic programming. For example, a kid will show certain kinds of fear of certain people. 
then of strangers, and then it's acceptance of people. And he says that's complex adaptive behavior at work and social interactions. But even laughing and smiling and making a raspberry sound, those are all complex adaptive behaviors, and they will emerge automatically. So he said you don't need to be taught those things. So he said that one idea is uh, that over the first three years that there were 350 very early complex adaptive behaviors that go into sequence. But if somehow you're interrupted with a stressor, it might affect that particular behavior that's emerging or just about to emerge. So it could be a year and a half or three months or 12 months. And he said after that, the effects of environment really start to drop. And by the time you start hitting puberty, you kind of sort of get locked in. And he said during puberty, your frontal lobe does do a bit of a switch. So, and if we want to get to, let's get into the science here. He says before puberty, a lot of your brain, your frontal lobe and its connections have to do with the orbital cortex, the amygdala, and that lower half of the brain that controls emotional regulation. He said it also is the origin of people's natural sense of morality. So when they learn regulation and the rules of the game, which are are called ethics, before then, generally, he said a normal kid is very much living in a world of id eating, drinking, some sexuality, but they're also extremely moralistic. So those are two things that are fighting each other over those first years. And and I've often, and I think I've said this on a podcast or two, but I had it best described to me at one point where every kid is, for the most part, what Dr. Fallon talks about um, living in this world of id, where they are going from self-centered. Every kid is self-centered. That's the way that they come from the factory. And then they slowly make this move from self-centered to self-confident. But when that self-centered piece is stalled, then you can see at, at times what personality disorders look like in adults where they seem like a giant 12-year-old boy or girl, where they do seem that uh, very self-centered. So he said there's a switch that occurs late in adolescence. He said for some people, um, it could be it could be at 17 or 18, 19, 20 years old. What happens is that the upper part of the brain, the frontal lobe and its connections start to mature. And he says that's a critical time because that's usually when you see things like schizophrenia, some forms of depression, and some of those more major psychiatric disorders. So for, for personality disorders, it's not really known when they will emerge because it's very understudied. He said that people will say you can't do anything about it. It's locked in and there seems to be almost no treatment. Whereas things like depression or bipolar or schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, you can do something about it. There are drugs or there's things that you can do with brain stimulation and talk therapy. And he said that's where big pharma and the whole industry goes. But he said you really start to see personality disorders emerge around puberty. But for some children who might be primary psychopaths, that is, they have all the genes and their brain sort of set in this, quote, third trimester, this can start emerging very early, around two or three years old. And that's where we have to be more trained, uh, have more trained eyes, because that's where this becomes important for society. He said that a primary psychopath won't necessarily be dangerous, but if we can see that a kid, if we can see it in a kid, we can tell parents to look for certain kinds of behavior. And if those behaviors emerge, we can safely discuss protecting the privacy of that family and of the kid, of course, of how to have that child interact with a nurse practitioner or a trained professional. He said at that point, we can say, hey, make sure this kid really isn't bullied in school or keep them away from street violence and so on. So I think that's where he's saying if you know the nature, then you can kind of work more with the nurture. He said a lot of kids, most kids get bullied and they might get ticked off. That doesn't create a personality disorder. So I want every parent to hear that part if you're still with me. But he said there are 20% of kids who are really susceptible and they may ultimately be triggered for something like a personality disorder in puberty. He said if we know these children can be helped by making sure that they aren't abused or abandoned because you got to get there really early, he said that would be important to do. And he says he doesn't mean to preach. But then the interviewer, Judah, says, well, well, go into the idea of preaching a little bit. She said, you make that kind of grandiose statement at the beginning of your book that research into psychopaths, even with all the privacy concerns, could have great implications for things from parenting to world peace. And so she just says, uh, what does that mean? And he goes on to say that it means, for example, that if you have to go to war, and he said, and sometimes you probably have to go to war, he said, I'm not talking about a belligerent uh, country starting war or um, fomenting discord, but if you have to go to war and to engage infantry, he said, in his opinion, you don't send 18-year-olds because their brains aren't set. He said they don't really know how to adjudicate what's happening emotionally or hormonally with the intellectualization of it. He said when you're 20 or 25, it can be a completely different matter because these things tend to gel a bit more. He said our emotions don't get away from us in much of the terms of what's happening. They, they don't, and, and he said other factors, sociological ones like what soldiers return to are also important. But he said we're not getting rid of war anytime soon, so we might as well engage in a way that does the least amount of damage. Okay, so he goes on. There's some other questions that she asked, but I kind of think that makes the point that I was really hoping to get to today. But uh, I will put that in the show notes, the article at The Atlantic, and also 
that would uh, I'll give you the link to the psychopath inside a neuroscientist personal journey into the dark side of the brain. So I toyed with the idea of making this a two-part episode, but let me uh, let me just kind of go through the article that I mentioned earlier, and this is from a Dr. Tracy Stein, and you can find her at Dr. D R T R A C I S T E I N dot com. And so she has a, a really good article on psychology today that says narcissists are sociopaths, similarities, differences, and signs. And so how about we go through this really quick and then we'll kind of wrap it up. We'll call it a, uh, we'll call it a day in one episode. So she goes on, to, uh, and I'll, I'll post links to this as well, um, but talks about this depiction of colorful, dangerous characters on TV and film and that that has brought a psychological term into the common vernacular. These words narcissist, this sociopath that uh, people kind of kick those around all over the place, and they truly do. And she said that there's certainly some overlap between these two personality disorders. They're both part of uh, any psychology geeks want to geek out a little bit here in the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, the DSM, which is where we get our uh, diagnostic criteria as therapists or our mental health professionals. Um, they're both part of what's called this cluster B group of personality disorders. And uh, that uh, those are comprised of things like narcissism, um, histrionic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, or borderline personality disorder. So, and, and sociopathy is actually captured by the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, or APD, as some call it. So despite both being part of this, um, what they call this dramatic and erratic cluster, this cluster B personality disorders, the two disorders are definitely not interchangeable, and they're also not so easy to identify day to day. So she says that it's much easier to spot narcissists or sociopaths or those who are, quote, off in some way on TV than it is in real life for a variety of reasons. So she goes into um, these, uh, these seven reasons why it can be tough to spot them, and I just wanted to go through that very quickly. So number one, she said it's a matter of degree. So somebody can have traits of a disorder without have, meeting the full criteria. And this goes back to that matter of degree uh, where we kind of say these days things are, are all on a spectrum. So she'll say, she said that, so a person will have a self-centered or callous flavor, but we wouldn't find them at the extreme end of the continuum with regard to those traits. So their offenses might be less frequent or less severe, or you might be able to give them some feedback if the person's a partner or a friend or a family member, and they might even be open to some of the feedback, but but they're not very good with it, or they don't always take ownership of their own behavior. She said, if you're dealing with somebody who's narcissistic or sociopathic, you're probably already aware that you have to tread very carefully and be willing, willing to withstand some of their, no, it's not me, it's you, when you broach concerns about their behavior toward you. And they're also more likely to punish you through criticism or silence or covert aggression of some sort, but the retaliation is less intense or prolonged than it would be if the person might be at the severe end of the spectrum. And she said, with regard to the latter, there's a good chance that the person in question will not be able to do too much with your feedback. But if they value your relationship, then a less impaired person should be able to, once calmer, work with you to a degree. Um, a person who is never wrong, totally unwilling to compromise, or is actively vengeful is dealing with more than just a few of the traits of one of these personality disorders. Um, number two, uh, she goes on to say that they are skilled at, quote, impression management. So the more skilled a person is at, at impression management, the more difficult it will be to label a personality or behavior as pathological. So Dr. Stein says that thus even a person with a number of problematic traits can still present as very charming and thoughtful and competent. And in fact, they can even be extremely skilled at getting you to help them or, or outdo, out, go do their bidding. Uh, that you often will take responsibility for their errors or insults. And one reason for this is that narcissists in particular can make you feel extremely special when their attention is on you. And that feeling of specialness is particularly seductive. She says that because narcissists in particular tend to pay extra attention to their appearance, they can also often be very attractive, which only adds to their allure. And someone who is particularly intelligent, well-mannered, well-educated, and is often uh, more convincing people that they know best does appear to be a great catch. And that leads to number three, and, and this is the whole one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about her take on uh, this and her article. They have a quote sixth sense for spotting the right people to manipulate. And you know, a long time ago, I did an article or I did an episode on HSP, highly sensitive persons. Uh, it's also called sensory processing sensitivity. It was with the wonderful guest Nikki Eisenhower, and in that HSP episode. Um, you know, there were a lot of questions that came out of that where people talked about this convergence of HSP and narcissism. And so the more you, you start to do some digging around that, you do find that a lot of people that are highly sensitive do end up in relationships with people that are on this spectrum of narcissistic personality disorder. So the big question is why? 
And I think Dr. Stein does a nice job explaining that. She said, narcissists and sociopaths are extremely good at sniffing out trusting, vulnerable people who tend to see the good in others. So thus, they can often be very difficult for nice people to spot until the offender has wreaked tremendous and undeniable havoc. She said repeatedly, because people tend to view others as subscribing to a generally accepted moral code, such as uh, that lying and harming others is wrong, even an otherwise savvy person can work hard to find the, quote, good reason why somebody must be acting off rather than identifying the problem as personalities or behaviors for what they are. So feelings of anger or distrust or fear about what we know about a loved one will cause great distress, otherwise known as what's called cognitive dissonance, where kind of what you're seeing and and what you're hearing are completely different things. So as a result, most of us will wind up resolving this cognitive dissonance by reinterpreting facts that that, that feel at odds with what we need and what we want to believe about somebody. She went on to give an example of somebody I wasn't familiar with named uh, Michael Mastrio Marino. She said he's a good example of somebody who exhibited significant narcissistic and sociopathic traits, but for years nobody around him knew the nefarious things that he was capable of. Um, Mastro Marino was a very successful dentist with a, quote, perfect life, a grand home, a trusting wife, and beautiful children. He is also a master excuse maker, serial philanderer, abused prescription drugs, and was convicted of running a multi-million dollar scam in which he took body parts from funeral homes and sold them to, for medical research. But for years, his wife believed his lies and excuses because she was so in love with them. And as his childhood sweetheart, she saw him uh, only in this drive to succeed and that he was this handsome, charming young man with whom she'd fallen in love. In a recent documentary, she spoke about how it remained incomprehensible to her that he could be guilty of the above until the evidence was truly overwhelming. Number four, they look just like you. She said related to number three, reading criteria for uh, uh, either disorder or watching news reports of criminals after their capture can lead one to assume that narcissists and sociopaths are easy to spot. Yet narcissists and sociopaths typically look just like you and me, or even better, given the narcissist's devotion to appearance. And uh, she talked to, gave some examples of other people um, that uh, said Bernie Madoff, the Dapper Don, John Gotti, um, this Mastro Marino, all, quote, normal-looking people who were very polished, well-dressed, smooth, and successful. She said your colleague, relative, neighbor, physician, dog walker, or anybody else can have these traits, and you probably wouldn't even know it. Number five, sometimes they just don't seem to fit the, quote, profile. So although men uh, are much more likely to meet the criteria for narcissism and sociopathy, women too can fit into these categories. Thus, the nice old lady down the street may be much more complex and less kind than you assume she is. Related to the impression management tendency, um, Dr. Stein says that narcissists may become involved in charitable or other, quote, good guy causes, not because they care so much about, uh, about the cause, but because it makes them look good. She said sociopaths would only engage in, quote, good works if it gave them an opportunity to scam people or otherwise work a system they've gained entry into. Um, Number six, she said that they won't necessarily commit an obvious crime. Rates of sociopathy are higher in prisons and other forensic settings than in the general population, 70% versus 0.2 to 3% respectively. So she says it's logical to associate sociopathy with obvious criminality, yet money and privilege can enable somebody to commit either type of a crime or a callous act that is more difficult to detect or for which somebody is less likely to be convicted of, of something illegal. So as an example, she said a wealthy business owner or an executive can repeatedly default on debts, uh, they can bully workers, they can harass employees, or misrepresent a product to consumers. These behaviors are callous and moral, and in often cases illegal, but they're also much more difficult to prosecute than a petty theft caught on a surveillance camera for a variety of reasons. And again, because these personalities are particularly good at selecting their victims, Often their targets are in a, socio, a social or economic position that makes it difficult or impossible for them to fight back. And then finally, she said that they can be harmful without being dangerous. So particularly in the case of narcissists, they can be emotionally hurtful, manipulative, and vengeful. She said some narcissists are physically aggressive when they feel psychologically injured, but all aren't. She said, similarly, although narcissists like sociopaths believe they are exempt from the normal rules that govern the rest of us, they're typically less impulsive and less likely to cause harm or commit a crime than sociopaths are. Thus, a cheating or verbally abusive partner or a friend who betrays you repeatedly or a personally exploitive colleague can cause hurt and havoc that leaves no visible scars. So then she quickly paraphrases the criteria for both narcissistic and antisocial personality disorder. So, and again, antisocial personality disorder is the personality disorder that soci, um, sociopathy 
um, sociopaths fit into. And she said, keep in mind that somebody can meet many criteria for both of these as well as other disorders. So remember, narcissistic personality disorder. So a uh, pervasive pattern of grandiosity, a need for admiration, a lack of empathy, as indicated by five or more of the following. They have a grandiose sense of self-importance. They exaggerate achievements, expect to be recognized as superior without commiserate achievements. Um, number two, they're preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited power, success, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Number three, believes he or she is special, and they can only be understood by similarly special, high-status people. Number four, they require excessive admiration. Number five, they have a sense of entitlement. Number six, is uh, interpersonally exploitive. Number seven, lacks empathy. Number eight, is envious of others or believes that they are envious of him or her. Number nine, shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. And, and I think if you go back and listen, I've done an episode or two on these other subtypes of narcissism. And because they're, you know, people will say, well, my, my you know, the person I'm worried about doesn't fit those criteria. And uh, again, these are the diagnostic statistic uh, manuals criteria for narcissism. But it appears that there are going to be some subtypes of narcissism most likely referenced in future diagnostic materials. So I would uh, encourage you to go listen to those uh, episodes. But then she talks about antisocial personality disorder. And this is a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others occurring since the age of 15 is evidenced by three or more of the following. Failure to conform to social norms is evidenced by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. Uh, number two, deceitfulness. Number three, impulsivity. Number four, irritability and aggressiveness is indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. Um, number five, reckless disregard for the safety of others. Number six, consistent irresponsibility as indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial commitments. Uh, number seven, lack of remorse as being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt others. And then the last one is that if the individual is at least 18 years of age. So, you know, again, the where does this leave us? You know, more research has shown that several types of harmful personalities do have these traits in common. Um, Dr. Stein referenced some uh, Paul House uh, study by this um, Paul House and colleagues. They've studied what they refer to as they call it the dark tetrad consisting of narcissists, psychopaths, Machiavellians, and sadists. And traits such as callousness and lack of empathy are common to all of them. And someone can be a narcissist who may also be sadistic or a sociopath who also might be Machiavellian, etc. But the bottom line, she says, is that although terms like narcissist and sociopath are in our common vernacular, there are important differences between them. And that said, they're not mutually exclusive. So if you find, here's the bottom line, you find yourself in a toxic relationship or you feel like a situation is too much to handle, it is definitely worth seeking counseling to help you take care of yourself and to prevent further problems. So that is a lot of information that I threw out at you today. I hope that is okay. Um, I hope you kind of hung with me. And, uh, and again, I think the bottom line here is if you are in a relationship that is unhealthy, then I definitely would encourage you to seek counseling. Um, I, you know, and I think here's one of the things where uh, I didn't say I maybe could have gone with this at the beginning. But um, I, sociopath versus psychopath. I'll end with this one. This is from a healthyplace.com article on personality disorders. It just says that sociopaths are often called psychopaths and vice versa, but there are differences between a psychopath and a sociopath. Psychopaths, for example, are far more likely to get in trouble with the law, while sociopaths are more likely to blend in with society. And while sociopaths and psychopaths do share some traits, psychopathy, um, or sociopathy, sorry, uh, which we just talked about was antisocial personality disorder, is generally considered less severe than psychopathy. And so we talked about what is a sociopath. Um, psychopaths can be thought of as more severe form of sociopathy with more symptoms. Therefore, all psychopaths are sociopaths, but not all sociopaths are necessarily psychopaths. So according to the Society for the Study of Psychopathy, um, psychopath traits do include this lack of guilt and remorse, lack of empathy, lack of deep emotional attachments, narcissism, superficial charm, dishonesty, manipulativeness, and reckless risk-taking. And, uh, but it does go on to say that, moreover, some believe that approximately 93% of psychopaths are in the criminal justice system. So that's, uh, that's pretty wild to kind of go with there. Um, here's a final quote. This is a presentation from one of psychopathy or sociopathy, how they differ, according to uh, Dr. Kelly McAleer. The psychopathy, um, the psychopath, is callous yet charming. He or she will con and manipulate others with charisma and intimidation and can effectively mimic feelings to present as, quote, normal to society. The psychopath is organized in their criminal thinking and behavior, and they can maintain good emotional and physical control 
displaying little to no emotional or autonomic arousal, and even under situations that most would find threatening or horrifying. The psychopath is keenly aware that what he or she is doing is wrong, but quite frankly, they don't care. Conversely, the sociopath is less organized in his or her demeanor. He or she might be nervous or easily agitated or quick to display anger. A sociopath is more likely to be spontaneously to act out in inappropriate ways without thinking through the consequences. Compared to the psychopath, the sociopath will not be able to move through society, committing callous crimes as easily as they can form attachments, and they often have, quote, normal temperaments. But so both psychopaths and sociopaths are capable of committing these crimes, but a sociopath is less likely to commit them against those with whom there is a bond. There you go. All you've ever wanted to know about psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists, and uh, again, Dr. James Fallon's book about uh, life as a nonviolent psychopath is pretty fascinating if you really are interested in this type of thing. All right. Hey, thanks for sticking with me this long. Um, Hey, we made it into one episode. All right. Have a wonderful week, and I will see you next time on The Virtual Couch.